You are listening to a sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee, the historic church of Robert Murray McShane. For more sermon content, please visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk. But uh, David Strain. David came here as a student to the Art College. It's when I first met him. He met his wife in this congregation, uh, went to Glasgow, uh, trained for the ministry, became a free church minister eventually in London, and then went to uh, Mississippi, and has just recently become, I don't know what his title is, um, uh, associate minister or something in First Pres in Jackson, a church, a church that uh, many people from there have visited us here. So David, it is a joy and privilege to have you back in Scotland and to have you back in Dundee, and I'd like to invite you to come and share God's word with us. Well, it's a a great joy to be with you. It's kind of like coming home. Um, I've been away for a long time, and there are still some folks here that are very dear to me. And so I'm absolutely delighted that God has given me an opportunity of coming and opening his word with you, Um, and also bringing to you the greetings of your brothers and sisters at First Presbyterian Church in Jackson. David is known and loved, is infamous and... Uh, cherished at First Presbyterian Church, and uh, we will be praying for you and the work of solos. I've been um, immensely encouraged to be here and witness it and uh, even be a little bit of a part in it. And uh, I see some of the things the Lord is doing, and it is thrilling to me to be back in, in Dundee and seeing the ways that God is at work. Let me invite you to take your copies of God's Word and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 32, Genesis chapter 32. We're going to be focusing on uh, the 22nd verse to the end of the chapter, but let's, let's start at the beginning so we have some context. Um, this is, the passage we'll be thinking about is one of those places that I think is very commonly misunderstood and misused. It is often used as a picture of how we ought to pray. Jacob wrestled with God and prevailed, and we should press on and wrestle with God until he gives us what we seek. As I hope we'll see, however, um, this is a turning point in Jacob's life where the focus is not so much on uh, how Jacob perseveres in his combat with the Almighty as it is on the fact that the Almighty overcomes Jacob and changes him forever. So let's read God's word, beginning at the first verse of chapter 32. Here is the very word of Almighty God. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim, which means two camps. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, in the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my master Esau. Your servant Jacob says, I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, men servants and maidservants, 
Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, We went to your brother Esau, and now he is coming to meet you, and 400 men are with him. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups, and the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought, if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left may escape. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, O Lord who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two groups. Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and ten male donkeys. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself, and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds. He instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, to whom do you belong and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you're to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift sent to my Lord Esau and he is coming behind us. He also instructed the second, uh, the third, and all the others who followed the herds, you are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him, and be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, and he, he himself, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives and his two maidservants and his eleven sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his possessions. So Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched. As he wrestled with the man, then the man said, Let me go, for it is daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, What is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, Your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel, saying, it is because I saw God face to face, and yet my life was spared. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel, 
and he was limping because of his hip. Therefore, to this day, the Israelites do not eat the tendon attached to the socket of the hip because the socket of Jacob's hip was touched near the tendon. Amen, and thanks be to God for his holy and inerrant word. Deep in the, in the roots of Western culture, certainly this is the case in the United States where I serve now, I think it's the case here still too, there is the aspiration to want to become a, quote, self-made man or self-made woman. There's a famous lecture that was delivered in 1895 by a freed slave named Frederick Douglass, echoing sentiments that had been articulated by President Abraham Lincoln in which Douglas said, quote, self-made men are the men who owe little or nothing to birth, relationship, friendly surroundings, to wealth inherited, or to early approved means of education, who are what they are without the aid of any of the favoring conditions by which other men usually rise in the world and achieve great results. There is, he said, nothing good, great, or desirable that does not come by some kind of labor. There is nothing good, great, or desirable that does not come by some kind of labor. If ever there was a man for whom those words might easily serve as a personal motto, there's nothing good, great, or valuable that doesn't come by some kind of labor. If ever there was a man for whom those words could be a motto, it was the patriarch Jacob, he was the archetypal self-made man. In the passage we're considering, as I said a moment ago, God brings Jacob to a different perspective, however. In an experience that is unparalleled by anything else in his life, God meets him, wrestles with him, overcomes him, humbles him, and teaches him that while the kind of self-reliance we so often celebrate and aspire to may indeed generate financial stability, garner personal influence, allow us to feel like we've finally arrived. It does not and it cannot take hold of the blessings of God. For that, cunning and scheming, successful, powerful Jacob is going to have to learn to limp. He must learn to live a dependent life. It's a salutary, if, it, if not a hard lesson to learn. It is one I think we all of us have to submit if the blessings of God's covenant of mercy and grace are to be ours. We all have to learn to limp, that is, to live the dependent life, clinging and resting, not on our own resources, but to the grace of God in the Lord Jesus Christ. And the first thing that I want you to see in this part of the story of Jacob's life is what I want to call the anatomy of a wrestler. Jacob was a man who wrestles with God and men. But what sort of a man is he? What is he like? Who is this Jacob who fights for his life at night beside the Jabbok River? What is he like? Why is he the way that he is? What is his spiritual anatomy? Jacob was, you might say, the characteristic chancer. He was a self-made man who would do almost anything to inherit the good life. If you know Jacob's backstory, you'll remember that he came out of the womb grasping the heel of his twin Esau. 
He wanted to be first. He cheated Esau out of his birthright for a pot of lentil stew. He deceives his own blind father, Isaac, by pretending to be Esau and gains the blessing of the firstborn in his brother's stead. In Genesis 27, when Esau came to receive the birthright himself, Isaac has to tell him, your brother came deceitfully and has taken away your blessing. And Esau replied, is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has cheated me these two times. Jacob's name has become a synonym for deception and manipulation and cunning and deceit. By hook or by crook, by whichever means, Jacob was going to come out on top, a self-made man doing it his way. There is another side to Jacob, however, as you'll see if you read through his story, that despite his self-reliance, again and again and again, God shows him mercy and grace. When Esau, enraged, comes to kill Jacob, Jacob flees, and he's leaving now the land of promise. But there the Lord met him at Bethel. There are angels in Jacob's dream ascending and descending from heaven. Jacob's being shown the spiritual dynamics behind the humdrum realities of life, the angels of God uh, executing and prosecuting the decrees of God and coming and going at his will and summons. And there uh, the Lord renews Uh, his covenant promises with Jacob. I am with you. I will keep you wherever you go. I'll bring you back to this land. God is showing him remarkable favor and kindness and grace. So, you see, there are these two sides to Jacob. There is Jacob, the child of the covenant, the heir of the promise, the focal point for God's blessing, the servant of the Lord the Lord's instrument in furthering His purpose at this part in the unfolding of the history of salvation. And then there's another Jacob, self-reliant, conniving, manipulative, who, despite the promise of God to bless him, wants to make sure, you know, wonders if God might not perhaps need a helping hand along the way, and wants to make sure that the blessing will be his, by means of his own devising. And those two sides of Jacob are constantly in conflict as we read his story. It's like reading the tale of someone in in deep conflict with himself, and for that reason, isn't it very much like reading our own stories so often? Aren't we all, those of us who are Christians, at war with ourselves? Uh, The Westminster Confession of Faith talks about the reality of the Christian life as an irreconcilable war taking place in the heart of a Christian. And uh, even though we're believers in the Lord Jesus, don't we find ourselves again and again trying to give God a helping hand just to make sure that He keeps His promises? Don't we find ourselves again and again resting on our own resources? Because trusting the Lord is after all, rather scary. We can't see what tomorrow brings. And so we're going to do whatever we have to do to make it all work. We're people in conflict with ourselves if we're believers. 
the flesh and the spirit warring with one another. So while we can't excuse Jacob, let's at least be quick to admit that he's not so very different from ourselves and recognize something of our own story here. Jacob is a man who knows God, he's met God, he's experienced the presence of God in dramatic ways, and yet for all of that, he remains as slippery a customer as can be imagined. And that comes out most clearly of all, I think, in the story of uh, Jacob's dealings with his uncle Laban. In the wake of Esau's anger, Jacob flees the promised land. He has this encounter with the Lord, and he goes to live with Uncle Laban at a place called Padan Aram. Um, If Jacob is a deceptive, slippery customer, it seems like he's almost met his match in Uncle Laban. He's a sort of Rodney Trotter character, a difficult man, you would not buy a used car from Uncle Laban. Um, Laban um, has a contract for Jacob. Jacob falls in love with uh, Laban's daughter, Leah, uh, Rachel rather, and uh, he's required to work for seven years. If you want to marry my daughter, you work for me for seven years, which Jacob does. And at the end of the seven years, when Jacob comes to Uncle Laban for uh, Rachel's hand, Uncle Laban gets out the contract and with a magnifying glass reads the extra fine print at the bottom, which says, before you can marry the younger sister, uh, you need to marry the older sister, Leah, first. If you want the younger sister, that'll cost you seven more years. And so, uh, seven years later, 14 years in total, Jacob now has two wives, and he actually continues on as a farmhand, working this time for flocks and herds and assets of his own to make a life for himself and his, uh, his family. And yet again, Uncle Laban is trying to outmaneuver poor Jacob. The speckled animals of the flock were going to be his, but that's a deal that Uncle Laban will strike only after having removed all the speckled animals from the flock and having sent them far away so that Jacob gets nothing. But the story is uh, amusing and stunning as the Lord, despite the deceptive hearts of both of these men, continues to show favor to Jacob. And no matter which way Laban changes the terms of the contract, Jacob always comes out on top. There are speckled uh, lambs from the flock that Jacob is able to have, and then there are no spots on any, and he he grows and grows and grows in personal wealth, often at Laban's expense, until much to Laban's frustration, Jacob is now the wealthier partner in this whole arrangement, and Jacob begins to realize it's time to get out of Dodge, because Uncle Laban is not going to tolerate him much longer. And that is precisely where our story really begins. Uh, Jacob flees yet again. He's fled from his older brother into exile, and the Lord had promised him mercy, but Jacob was a self-reliant man who takes God's promise but holds it lightly and tries to make good on his own. He fled into exile to Padan Aram and lived with Uncle Laban, and there manipulating and deceiving. Nevertheless, the Lord blesses him and shows him favor. 
not to condone his sin, but because God is merciful and gracious. And now again, he flees back this time toward the land of promise. And here he is um, at the beginning of chapter 32, once again at the fords of the river. And here again, as he comes back 20 years later to the promised land, he sees a vision of angels and God meets him and uh, reassures him. He sees an army encamped as though to say there are more guarding the promises of God and the land of blessing than your best attempts at self-reliant manipulation and your own cunning and wit. The armies of heaven are committed to the fulfillment of God's design. And as Jacob sees that vision, he also receives word that Esau is coming with 400 armed goons. And uh, so Jacob now has a real challenge in front of him. He names the place Mahanaim, that means two camps. There's the camp of the angels in heaven, which are perhaps in two camps, or maybe it refers to the angels in his own camp. Either way, he takes his cues from that, divides everything he has into two, sends one group one way, one group the other way, to try and protect them so that if Esau attacks one, the other will be safe. And then he sends messengers to try to mollify his brother. And Jacob eventually sends his own family and all his possessions across the river so that he's left completely alone at the side of the Jabbok River. All that he's earned over all those years has gone ahead of him. All that his manipulation and skill that he has attributed to his own successes have gone ahead of him. And he's left He's left all alone. And he does something in verses 9 to 12 before he sends all, all his resources across the river that we only read of him doing here. This is the only time he does this in his life, so far as we know. It's the longest prayer in the book of Genesis. Jacob at last turns to the Lord. He's been trusting himself. He's been doing everything he can do to make it all work out. And now at last, finally, it seems Jacob turns to the Lord. It's a remarkable prayer, especially when you think about the kind of man Jacob has become. And it, it matters especially in Jacob's life because there seems to have been begun at least a change in his heart. This is a sort of pivotal moment for Jacob. Verse 10, look at how he speaks of himself. I am not worthy of the least of all the deeds of steadfast love and faithfulness that you've shown to your servant. With only my staff I came across the river, now I've become two camps. I'm not worthy. He has lied and cheated and struggled and schemed to make his own way in the world. A self-made man, right? But now as Esau is bearing down on him once again, that's no longer how he sees his life. He ascribes whatever blessing he has enjoyed, not to his own machinations here, not to his own cleverness, but to the covenant love and faithfulness of Almighty God. And the catalyst for that new self-awareness Verse 11, please deliver me from the hand of my brother Esau, 
for I fear him. I'm scared. The vision of the angelic armies that met Jacob at the beginning of the chapter, notwithstanding. He's in the grip of fear. He, he, he doesn't know what to do now. And it's made him begin to think again about his imagined omnicompetence for every challenge that has been confronting him. Maybe I can't do it all on my own. Maybe I never could. He's beginning to see himself actually as he really is. And as we watch that discovery unfolding, we are being helped to see ourselves also. Jacob has been a wrestler, a fighter, a striving, scheming, self-made man, and now at the turning point of his life, he's beginning to see just how hollow all of that has really been. That night, he sends his family and everything he has across the river, and in verses 23 and 24, he is all alone, afraid in the dark. All alone, afraid in the dark. What a powerful image for Jacob's real condition. Bereft of resources. All alone, afraid in the dark. Have you felt, have you felt like that before? All alone, afraid in the dark. With no resources confronting the darkest trials of your life, wondering what in the world am I going to do? How, how am I going to make it? How do I make this work? All alone, afraid in the dark. It's the kind of man Jacob was, and now he's come to see its utter bankruptcy. He was a self-made, self-reliant, strong man, and he could do it, but no longer. It's all come tumbling down like a house of cards. This is who Jacob really is. Maybe it's you too. Maybe you have been laid bare by the word of God or the providence of God and the way that he's been dealing with you in your life and it's all beginning to come tumbling down like a house of cards and you see the bankruptcy of it all and you're all alone and you're scared. But the second thing that I want you to see is that God doesn't leave Jacob all alone, afraid in the dark. There's the anatomy of a wrestler, but secondly, there's the victory of a cripple. The victory of a cripple. Alone in the dark that night on the banks of the river Jabbok, Jacob is attacked. Not by Esau, as he'd been expecting, but by a shadowy figure whom we learn at the end of the encounter is the Lord. Verse 24 says he's merely a man wrestled with him until the break of the day. Jacob eventually comes to realize that he is the Lord God Almighty himself who's been making these covenant promises and renewing them again and again with him and his father and his grandfather. Almighty God attacks Jacob. Now, understand, this is, this is not Marquis of Queensbury rules. This is not polite, nor is this the kind of preposterous wrestling spectacle that we sometimes see on our television screens. This is Jacob's fighting for his life. He's been mugged in the middle of the night by Almighty God. 
Now, why would God do that to him? Here he is, finally, after all that he's been through, beginning to see that he does not have the resources and that he should look to God. And he's begun to pray and he's crying out to the Lord. And as he does so, at this point in his life, God comes to him and attacks him. Why would God do that? Look at, how, look at what happens. Jacob wrestles until daybreak. The angel of the Lord sees that Jacob is not to be thrown off. And so he, he merely touches his hip socket. And Jacob's hip is immediately put out of joint as they wrestle. The word that's used to describe the hip being touched there is not a, it's a very mild term. This is not a mighty blow. This is the slightest touch. Imagine a fingertip brushing, um, brushing Jacob's hip and the, the wrestler's fulcrum, you know, the pivot point in a wrestling match is your, is your, are your hips. And now searing agony shoots through Jacob. And all hope of winning this uh, wrestling bout is gone. There's no possibility of him winning. All he can do now is hold on for dear life. He's crippled. Actually, he's crippled for the rest of his life. He's, a, he's going to spend the rest of his days hobbling. And, and that is actually the lesson. That's the whole point. Before he can enter the land of promise, Jacob has been stripped systematically of all his worldly goods, his material possessions, his household, everything. All the riches of 20 years in Padan Aram, all the evidence of his own accomplishments, they've been sent across the river. But he does not enter the promised land. His way is barred, his access denied by the Lord himself who assails him and leaves him disabled for life. You see, it was not enough that Jacob be left without resources. Jacob had to be left without strength, no longer trying to overcome in his own power, but desperately clinging to God, saying, I will not let you go unless you bless me. He reminds me of the disciples who said to Jesus, to whom else can we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have no choice. If it's blessing that I want now, Jacob realizes I have to cling to you. I, I think I've misunderstood Jacob's words to the Lord in this passage for years, really. I used to understand it to be, I will not let you go unless you bless me as a sort of triumphalistic, macho, you know, I'm in agony, but I'm still going to win. I'm going I'm to force you to bless me. But the whole point of that dramatic moment when with a fingertip the Lord dislocates Jacob is that Jacob suddenly realizes he can't win and he never could win. He's been overcome by the Lord. And now as he realizes that his position is not to force God to act on his behalf, to leverage blessing but rather to cling and depend and rest on the God uh, who has made promise after promise to him. Now, he holds on tight and says, I won't let you go 
bless me in my brokenness, in my destitution, in my, in my utter bankruptcy. And that is, I think, what the Lord wants from us. And sometimes it takes sore touches from his hand, dislocating providences that leave us limping for life. Some of us have been limping for a long time. Some of us have been confronted by God and have been hobbled by him. And we find ourselves wondering, as I'm sure Jacob wondered, why in the world would this be happening to me now? I've sought to be faithful. The Lord's been dealing with me. I've been repenting and believing and clinging to the gospel and doing everything right, and now this is happening. Why is this going on? Why is this breaking in on my life and breaking me? I think part of the answer is to strip us of those deep layers of self-dependence that govern our lives. You've probably heard this poem before. I think it speaks to this situation that Jacob encounters rather well. When God wants to drill a man and thrill a man and skill a man, when God wants to mold a man to play the noblest part, when he yearns with all his heart to create so great and bold a man that all the world shall praise, watch his methods, watch his ways, how he ruthlessly perfects whom he royally elects, how he hammers him and hurts him and with mighty blows converts him into frail shapes of clay that only God understands, how his tortured heart is crying and he lifts beseeching hands, how he, bren- how he bends but never breaks when his good he undertakes, how he uses whom he chooses, with every purpose fuses him by every art induces him to try his splendor out. God knows what he is about. Part of the message of this passage is to say to us, as dislocating providences, as God breaks in and seems to assail us and oppose us, part of the message is to say, God knows what he is about. He does not want you clinging to your own resources, but resting in his, clinging to him and saying, I won't let you go bless me. It's an example, actually, of God's ruthlessness with us as he tries to make us like Jesus, slaying our sin and making us rest upon him. If you read the story, it becomes very clear that God has, in fact, worked a dramatic change in Jacob's life before the Lord does at last bless him. He asks Jacob's name, and Jacob the deceiver, the schemer, the usurper, is given a new name. He's a changed man. He becomes Israel, the one who wrestles with God and prevails. Jacob the deceiver would never enter the land of promise, but Israel, the one who prevails with God, this man who's humbled and hobbled and crippled and overcome, who wins by weakness who triumphs by losing. This is the man that inherits the blessing. All his life, he's sought to win that blessing by his own means, and now he's stripped of all of it, clinging to God, crying out in desperation, and receiving it as a gift. Isn't that the same lesson the Apostle Paul learned? 
A thorn in the flesh, remember, was given to Paul. Three times he pled with God to be delivered from his sufferings. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the Lord said to Paul, My grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, Paul goes on, I'll boast all the more gladly in my weaknesses that the power of Christ might rest on me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses so that the power of Christ, uh, weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, calamities, for when I am weak, then I am strong. When I'm weak, then I am strong. That's Jacob's lesson. Is it a lesson you have learned? Is it a lesson the Lord is trying to teach you amidst the trials of your life? Can you say, when I'm weak, then am I strong? The Lord is hobbling me, but as I lean on his strength, he shows himself mighty and gracious to bless. Have you learned to limp? The only victors in the Christian life are cripples. The only victors in the Christian life are cripples. The only winners are those who've lost the fight with God and have learned to cling to him. The anatomy of a wrestler or the victory of a cripple. And then very, very quickly, finally, the memory of an heir. Verse 32, what's the point of that curious little note at the end of the story about the sinew of the thigh that the Jews won't eat? It's simply to say this story of Jacob, heir of the covenant, the inheritor of the promises, this story was memorialized in the life of the people of God from that point onwards. And interestingly, like so many of God's important lessons, it was memorialized in a meal, in a way of eating. When we're sitting at the Lord's table, that's what we're doing, isn't it? We are remembering the greater than Jacob the sinless Savior whom God did not merely cripple, but whom he crucified, whose every bone was put out of joint, Psalm twenty-two, fourteen, not for himself, but for us. And in our place, like Jacob in weakness, clinging to God, the Lord Jesus won the blessing of the covenant inheritance and the way to promised blessing was opened for us who believe the good news. And we too have a meal that remembers And I think actually that's the most important lesson Jacob's story teaches us, not just that we must turn from ourselves to God, but that we must turn from our foolish attempts at self-salvation to salvation by grace alone through faith in Jesus. He was broken that we might live. He won the blessing that we might be blessed in him. No self-made man or woman enters the land of promise. No self-made man or woman enters the land of promise. That's part of the point of our text. So maybe God has been wrestling with you. And by sore touches of his hand, hobbling and humbling you, and calling you to remember the heir of the covenant, not Jacob, as Israel remembered Jacob, but the Lord Jesus who, who died that sinners and you, like you and I might live. 
and inherit God's promises in him. Genesis 32, 22-32 is in the end a call to faith in Christ. To look away from ourselves to our Savior. It's a call to repudiate our trust in ourselves. To say no to self-reliance. And to depend upon the one who often breaks in upon us and with sore touches of his hand teaches us that all blessing and all grace flows from him and you cannot leverage it from him, but he will give it to you as a gift of grace if you will but look to him in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Thank you for listening to this sermon from St. Peter's Free Church in Dundee. If you found this sermon has been helpful to you, please help us to continue building up and assisting the people of God. Visit our website at stpeters-dundee.org.uk For information and training on persuasive evangelism and how to share your faith biblically, please visit the website of SOLAS, the Centre for Public Christianity, at solas-cpc.org. Once again, that website address is solas-cpc.org. Thanks for listening.